0: Welcome to the CI podcast, an opportunity to open God's word together, learn more about who Jesus is and know how to follow him in the world today. So hi everyone, welcome back to the CI podcast. Hello Jim, how are you?
1: I am very well, thank you Judy, can't complain.
0: Um, If you're joining us for the first time we're delighted to have you with us and hope that today's session will be helpful. We're now in our third study in this little four-part series on characters in the Bible who experience times of stress or uncertainty in their lives. So Jim, how's the last week or couple of weeks been for you? It
1: hasn't been all that different. I mean it's very stressful trying to get the church back um, into the same physical space. So we're trying to create this blended service where some people are online and other people are physically present and stuff, And, and that's a lot of technology goes wrong. But it's been okay. I mean, the, the last 30 minutes of my life has, has put me into massive depression because when I was driving down here, I was listening to um, Leonard Cohen. Okay. So <laughs> you have to get me out of a depression. <laughs> Don't hear? No pressure? Oh. I do but jest. I do but jest. <laughs> i'm fine how's your week been
0: my week's been fine actually i've been enjoying the weather there's now a heat wave in northern ireland last time we were moaning well i was moaning you weren't about the rain and the wind but it's lovely to see the sun out so happy about that i've been fine i'm sorry that you have been a bit of (laughs) a no i've been fine (laughs) (laughs) but um Hopefully we'll get some encouragement out of this time anyway. So this week we'll be thinking about Daniel, a story of a young man heading off to university in a strange land, very suitable for freshers listening to us now. So yeah, we would love to just open up our Bibles. If you've got them, grab a cup of coffee and join us as we read Daniel chapter one.
1: Let me just set the scene, the historical scene here. So first, the first thing it says, the old, the, these small books at the end of the Old Testament can be tricky enough to find, but Daniel's easy. So he just... Find Ezekiel, the massive book of Ezekiel, and turn right and uh, you'll find Daniel. So the the historical context is actually really interesting here. The, The politics, the geopolitics of the ancient Near East changed dramatically in the year 605 BC. Um, it was a battle called the Battle of Carchemish. It was down in, in history. It's one of the most important battles uh, in world history. Because to everyone's amazement, this young upstart country called Babylon thrashed the Egyptians. So the two big guerrillas in the ancient Near East were Egypt and particularly Assyria. Uh, but suddenly Babylon becomes the superpower of the ancient Near East. So on his way home from Carchemish, the king of Babylon, a, a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, uh, stops off at Jerusalem now. I should explain that, that before Babylon arose as a, as a world power, Judah had been a vassal state to Egypt, so they wrote big fat checks to Egypt just to you know, stop them being invaded, posted them off to the pharaoh. So now Nebuchadnezzar calls in and says, I, actually, I want those checks now to come to me. Now, at that point, he didn't actually damage the, the, the city of Jerusalem. He, he does, of course, a few years later in 597 five, BC. But what he did do, he did two things. He took a lot of the gold vessels from the temple, and he also took some of the brightest managerial talent from the city with him, uh, including this young man, Daniel, and three of his friends. Okay? And then he returns home to Babylon. So that's the context. <clears throat> so I'll read um, Daniel chapter 1 uh, up to verse 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the vessels the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his god, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his god. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skilful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse
0: ate then. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of the Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Michel, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Good. I will say there, forgive me if I got any of those names wrong. Oh, you did that's very well. had some fun with them earlier. <laughs> so what a passage. How would you describe, Jim, the culture shock that Daniel and his three friends experienced?
1: Mm, I think that's a, a great question because if you want to get into Old Testament books, you have to understand the drama of the, the scene and, and the culture shock that these four young men experienced was unbelievable I mean they were probably the age of a typical fresher perhaps a year or two younger even so uh, let's just think there were the memories of mum and dad's tears uh, as they said a final farewell and there's that thousand mile trek from Jerusalem to Babylon and Jerusalem had been their home you know it had it was familiar to them they they um, they played in the shadows of the temple uh, you know uh, they played tag at the entrance of the Benjamin gate and peered through the doors of the royal palace um, but now they were in Babylon and at that point Babylon had it was the largest city in the world uh, many times larger than Jerusalem. Jerusalem must have felt like a little hick town in comparison and Babylon had this spectacular entrance it's the Ishtar Gate is called. Um, you can actually go and visit it in the, a museum in Berlin. It's covered in ceramic blue tiles adorned with these giant lions and, and dragons and bulls and Every brick of that gate had Nebuchadnezzar's name inscribed on And then they went inside this massive city and uh, archaeologists will tell us there was this huge wide avenue running the length of the place. And it was dominated by a big ziggurat and it was a, a cosmopolitan um, city. <coughs> it had the famous hanging gardens, you know, you've heard of those. Mm-hmm. So yeah. much culture. Over a thousand temples inside the city and these great winged uh, sphinxes guarding their entrances. So everything was different. The language, the smells, the food, the customs, and it was so big. So if you just think about it, these four young guys from Jerusalem, they must have felt overawed uh, by the sheer cultural power of Babylon. They were students. uh, And as we read, they enrolled in a three-year course in King's College Babylon, studying history, literature, political theory, and even a little bit of astronomy. So the culture shock would have been huge.
0: Yeah, very true. And the culture shock ran even deeper than food and language, didn't it? I want to focus from the first seven verses of the chapter and think about two big ideas. The first is relativism and the second is about identity. So to get into this, how would you describe the difference between Daniel's worldview and the worldview that prevailed in Babylon?
1: Yeah, these four young men had entered uh, a culture that was built on pagan principles, the Babylonians' view of reality, of how things really were, their, you know, their basic assumptions about humanity and life and God were completely different from the beliefs that Daniel had learned from men like Jeremiah back in Jerusalem. And I think that's a brilliant metaphor for um, the culture change that has occurred in Ireland uh, over the past 15 years. Um, so it's the ancient story. It gives us a real insight into our culture in 2020. Because if you like, we were raised in Jerusalem but now we're living in Babylon, or heading for life in Babylon. And by that I mean we were raised in a Christian culture, but that culture has collapsed. We no longer live within the familiar comforting value system derived from a Christian worldview. Uh, We feel like strangers in a culture that's built on the philosophical foundations of Freud or uh, Foucault. Um, Now, think for a moment about... Uh, Just to convince you of that, like the cultural controversies that stare us uh, in the face from our newspapers today. So think about abortion or reflect on the opinion polls that say a vast number of 18 to 24-year-olds in Ireland now see sexual orientation and gender as fluid things. Or think of the relentless drive to push uh, religious belief into the private sphere. Now behind all those things, uh, those examples, we come across the same underlying worldview. And it's a thing you called relativism. Underneath all those issues are some profound changes in how society thinks about reality and what it means to be human. So I think it's a really, the exile is a really helpful metaphor for your generation. You were raised in Jerusalem, but now you're heading for life in Babylon.
0: Can we see any evidence of that gulf in worldviews from the first seven verses?
1: Well, I think verse two is fascinating. Um, let me just read it to you again. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, you might pass over that verse and not think it's very important, but it's hugely important. You see, the pagan cultures of the ancient world had lots of gods. um, But all those gods, without exception, they were part of nature. They were part of the same big system. But in Hebrew culture, this radical idea was taught. The Hebrews believed that there was only one God. But crucially, they said that God was not part of creation. Um, uh, he wasn't just another player in the big system. He was in a different category. He was the eternal creator who made everything out of nothing. Um, So just as as an aside, that is the really interesting thing about monotheism, which is the single idea um, which drove the rise of Western civilization. It's not just that there's one God. It's that that God is in a different category from his creation. He's not part of the same system. Anyway... The temple in Jerusalem was built to, to uh, illustrate that truth. And so Nebuchadnezzar would have been amazed when he visited the temple to discover that it contained no image of Judah's God. Uh, but what he did find were lots of these beautiful artifacts, these uh, temple vessels that were used by the priests in, the, in their worship. And in the ancient world, of course, gold was of supreme value. So the golden vessels in the temple were a visual aid. They reminded God was of supreme value. Okay, So... Let's think about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They would have been taught uh, those majestic truths that I have just gone through about God from their infancy. And the golden vessels in the hands of the priests would have taught them what was valuable. Okay. So everything of real value derives its value from God. Now that's, that's the big idea in, in Judeo-Christianity. Christianity says that you're valuable because made you and he loves you. But now look what happens. These golden vessels... Are taken from the temple in Jerusalem and um, were taken uh, in in Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't mistreating them; he was actually being fairly respectful, according to the rules of his old pagan mind. But what did he do? He put them in a museum, along with all the other religious artifacts that he had taken from different nations. So, in symbolic terms, God was being demoted to just one religion among many. Okay. So, my point is this: in Babylon, nothing had objective value; everything is relative. All religions are reduced to mere cultural artefacts. So imagine you, could, you wandered around Nebuchadnezzar's museum. Okay? You would see religious artefacts from Egypt, and uh, from Assyria, from Moab and Judah. So the true and living God is reduced to just one among many. Now when you walk onto a campus of any university in Ireland today, you are entering a world where nothing has absolute value. Everything is relative. So the Christian faith has been reduced to a cultural thing. Okay, Now that's a problem, because the Christian gospel is a claim that there is objective truth. When a Christian explains the gospel, they're not stating their opinion or a cultural preference. They are saying they have an insight into the way reality works. This is how things really are. The Christian is asserting that the gospel corresponds to reality. It is objectively true. But in Babylon, talk like that will get anyone into trouble. Because in Babylon, all values are relative.
0: So how should we respond to that idea? Should we just accept that our faith is just one way of looking at the world, that it's just one cultural artifact among men?
1: Well, I I think there's a, I know it's in chapter 2, I'm I'm being slightly disorderly, but I I want to take you to one verse in chapter 2. It's verse 27. I'll read it in a moment. The context here is that the king has had a terrible nightmare, okay? And he's asked all his philosophers and his scientists and his political advisors to explain his dream to him. And nobody can do so, so the king decides to execute all of them. (laughs) the joys of totalitarian dictatorship. Anyway, in desperation, someone suggests that Daniel be brought into the court. And Daniel begins by saying that of himself, he couldn't interpret any dream. Nobody can. But now let me read verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven. And I hope those seven words um, will be imprinted on anyone um, reading and listening to us now. But there is a God in heaven. So Daniel stood there in that court, surrounded by the ruling elite of his pagan culture, and he lifted their eyes away from their tawdry little materialistic, naturalistic system. He lifted their eyes out of their pagan worldview and pointed them to the eternal creator, the true and living God, who's in a different category from his creation. There is a God in heaven," he said. In other words, he was he was saying, "My religion isn't just one more cultural artifact among many. It isn't just another exhibit in your little museum, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, the, those golden vessels don't help me find my personal truth. My God is the true and living God, the eternal Creator. He's the source of all that's real and valuable. So remember, I said that in Babylon, nothing had, a, 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 had objective value. So, as the people of God. As a Christian community, we are called to live on our campuses in such a way that our friends and fellow students see that our faith isn't just a cultural thing. That's the big idea here. So by valuing what God values, uh, by valuing things like truthfulness and humility and forgiveness, we're saying to those around us, there is a God in heaven. There's a higher throne, uh, we sometimes sing. Well, people start to believe in the reality of that throne when they see us kneeling in obedience before it. They can't see the throne, but they can see us kneeling. In other words, they, they, they see students who think that truthfulness is more valuable than success, mm. that good character is more valuable than physical attractiveness, that purity is more valuable than popularity. And so they will learn what God is really like.
0: Yeah, brilliant. So you thought a bit about the... Real devising of our beliefs in culture. I want to think now a bit about identity. In verses 6 and 7, we're told the four guys who were given new names. Um, So the names of Daniel's three friends were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But those weren't their real names. What was the name change about, do you think?
1: Yes, verses 6 and 7, again, are those sorts of verses you might pass over. But they're really, really significant. Verse 6 says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, And then he gives them the new names to Daniel, Belteshazzar, and so forth. So the point here is about identity. Because in Babylon, in other words, in the culture that we now have to move into, identity is an invention. Okay? Uh, So how do I explain that? Well, I sometimes, as you well know, Judy, I have to drive to remote parts of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, but I have the directional sense of a lemming. So uh, smartphones are great. Uh, I can look at a, a map on the screen and see a little flashing icon which tells me you are here. It locates me within the context of a map. <coughs> now, that's not a bad way to understand the concept of identity. Your identity, your self-understanding, is like a location. Okay? When I think of who I am, when I consider my sense of of, of identity, of self-awareness, what I'm really doing is locating myself in a story. And you can see that principle emerge from the names of the four young Hebrews. As I said, I think, last time, in the Old Testament, when you're given a name, it's not like being called Trevor, okay? Um, It was a summation of their self-understanding. So now listen to these names. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord shows me grace. Mishael means who is like God. In other words, Mishael meant that God is unique, and Azariah means the Lord is my help. So when you put those four names together, you have a pretty good summary of the gospel. In fact, I once preached a sermon on this. God is my judge, but he shows me grace, God is unique, and he offers me help. Now, the obvious point here is that these four young Hebrew students located their sense of identity in relation to God and his grand story. So we can imagine God's grand narrative for the universe as a map and stretching from before creation to new creation, the new heaven and the new, and the new earth. And these four guys could see themselves as four little flashing icons in that giant map, and they could say, I am here. And the answer to the question, who am I, is found by location in God's map. Okay. Now, then they come to Babylon, and they're given four invented names. The names Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were names that were derived from the Babylonian idols, from Marduk and the moon god and so forth. Now, that renaming was a cynical piece of cultural assimilation. It was social engineering at its worst. Nebuchadnezzar thought that human identity was a flexible thing, something that could be you know, manipulated and changed. And that comes to the heart of the, the issue you have raised, Judy, which is the question of identity. Okay? Our culture says exactly the same thing. It's rejected the biblical story that runs from creation and the fall through the redemption and glory. And so we no longer understand ourselves by locating ourselves in that story. We've been given a new one. I mean, I'm I'm conscious that there's some freshers perhaps listening to us and they've decided to embark on a three-year study in the humanities and uh, they, they have to be particularly careful, much more careful than those who are studying science. Because in the humanities, they will be told that they have the freedom to create themselves at the level of being able to create the basic values that give meaning to life. In other words, provided I don't, give, I don't cause harm to anyone else, I can do whatever I want because I get to create moral values for myself. I am sovereign over what is right and wrong. But it goes even deeper than that. Modern philosophy says not only can I do whatever I decide to do, I can be whatever I decide to be. No one, not even God, is allowed to thwart my right to self-creation. I'm a self-sufficient being who doesn't carry any preloaded essence as a creative thing. I create my own self. And no sacred scripture or metaphysical authority figure can tell me what I ought to do. Now, at its heart, that is idolizing freedom, turning it into a rejection of creaturehood. Now, but consider the stress and the, uh, the pressure that that puts, um, the rejection of contingent creaturehood puts on the human heart. Your generation, duty is called to self-create, to imagine and then fashion a self which we present to the world as a piece of performative art. Uh, So to construct a self like that, you first have to jettison the idea that you have any intrinsic ontological significance. So the old idea of intrinsic human dignity disappears. And then by looking deep inside yourself through a process of introspection, the imagination processes our deepest desires to produce a vision of ourselves. And then we perform our imagined self to the world. And it is this performance, we are told, which generates value. Now, that is enormously stressful. And I think it lies at the root of a great deal of the mental health issues that your generation struggles with. So this whole question of identity is huge. And so these name changes that you're looking at in those verses um, speak to something really, really deep in in our own culture.
0: So in the second half of the chapter, we find the story about Daniel resolving to eat only vegetables. I couldn't think of anything worse. We can think of a lot more practically about the verses 8 to 21. Could a passage like this be used to argue for something like veganism?
1: <laughs> I got into real trouble uh, at Queen's University oh three or four years ago. I gave a talk on veganism um, because it is a massive issue. It's a massive issue in, in many of the unis down in the Republic of Ireland and, and particularly in England, of course, in the States. But in, uh, I was confronted by an audience of rural Presbyterians and, and really they thought, what is this man talking about? Um, so I didn't, I didn't realise my audience weren't quite um, at the same um, place as most students. So let's just talk a little about this. Um, so way back in Genesis 9 verse 3, human beings are given permission by God to eat meat. Okay. Now, some restrictions were placed on that um, freedom. Uh, Some of them were hygienic, like not eating bats. Um, I I wish we had that prohibition uh, in place today. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all, Jim? Uh, Yes. Um, But then there were other restrictions that were ceremonial, things like not eating pork. Um, Now, the interesting thing is that the New Testament actually removes most of those restrictions, certainly all the ceremonial ones. So if we now think as Christians in the Christian era, I think there are two principles that apply in this area of life. The first is a policy of what we might call mutual respect. Paul is clear in Romans 14 that anyone who chooses to live a, veg- well, well, it's a vegetarian lifestyle he, he, he's dealing with, he says they should be treated with respect. Um, and that can extend to eating a vegan meal with joy when you are receiving hospitality. So no one should put pressure on them to eat meat. Uh, But on the other hand, Christian mediators should not be pressurized to become a vegetarian or a vegan. In fact, the New Testament specifically warns us about people who try to impose um, uh, restrictions on eating meat for moral reasons. Um, So that's the first principle, what we might call mutual respect. But then there's another principle, and that is what we might call stewardship, the stewardship of the planet. And this is a massive issue, again, for your generation with the uh, impending disasters uh, related to climate change. And here I think there are strong grounds for us eating a lot less meat. Uh, So the industrialization of of agriculture is a major factor in climate change. I I personally believe that technology will get us out of this hole. Uh, I really do. I think if synthetic biology can create a pleasant tasting burger, I would prefer to eat it over the meat of a real animal. Um, So I I think, but that is a completely different argument, isn't it? That's a a practical argument about um, the, the future of the planet. It's not what has been called ethical veganism. So I'm probably going to be a little bit controversial here, but I I do worry about the philosophical foundations of ethical veganism because I think it comes very close to pantheism, to, to the pantheism of Hinduism. And scripture makes it clear that there is a massive gulf between animals and human beings. So I would counsel vegans to make sure that they're motivated by a high view of animal life rather than a low view of human life. Now, the is really complicated. It needs to be addressed seriously and thoughtfully by your generation and by my generation. But the, 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 this is a very long-winded way of saying this passage in Daniel has nothing to do with the question of, of ethical veganism. Um, uh, at least I don't think it has. But, I mean, you were telling me just before we, we, we hit the record button here, there is something called a Daniel diet. Is that, is that a thing?
0: Yeah, one of the the things I found this morning when I was looking up Uh, the book of Daniel on Google, was the Daniel diet came up as one of my first Google searches. Um, So it just said Daniel diet, clicked on it, and it talked about how good the Daniel diet is for weight loss. Uh, Which I think is a little bit of a misunderstanding here in what the first chapter is all about. Um, I don't think Daniel was too concerned with his summer bod. But yeah, that's clearly what people are taking from it. And that's concerning in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the real issue that's going on here is that Daniel is refusing to engage with idolatry because the meat was offered to idols. And there would have been a big ceremony um, around the king's table where the meat would have been offered to idols, and that's what he was refusing to participate in.
0: So Daniel was refusing to participate in idolatry. How might we apply that principle when we're on campus today?
1: Well, it is an important principle. So the crucial thing to do is to identify the big idols uh, that dominate our own cultural landscape. So think about things like autonomy or materialism or hedonism or sex. These are things that are worshipped uh, on campus. And by, by that I mean they are seen to be of ultimate value. They are the regulating principle by which people order their lives. Um, so we have to make sure we live in a way that doesn't bow down to those idols. I think that's the key point here.
0: Yeah. And why did this apparently trivial issue for vegetables matter in Daniel's life?
1: Yeah. Again, there's a really practical pastoral point here for, for your generation. Um Daniel's big test, if you like, comes in, in chapter 6, you know, where he's thrown into the den of lions um, and, uh, uh, because he refuses to stop praying. Um, but the interesting thing is, he was an old man by that point. And there are some people, I think, who believe that they can potter along not living a distinctive life. But they say to themselves, if there was a really big test, I would stand for Christ. (laughs) But that is very unlikely, because in actual fact, the courage to stand for Christ is something that's developed. So you start with the small things. So this very apparently trivial incident early on in Daniel's life was actually the start of something which built steel into the man so that he was able to handle the big tests of life, uh, the big tests uh, to stand for God uh, in a pagan culture.
0: Brilliant. So just wrapping this up, Jim, a more general question to finish. What does the passage teach us about the Bible's view of university life, about education of the mind?
1: Well, I would say God values civilization. I mean, Daniel, the book of Daniel has a fairly nuanced and balanced view of of the kingdoms of this world. Um, of course, they're seen later on as, as uh, big amoral power blocks. But there's a much more positive view of civilization in in chapter 2 with the school and statue. So the the important point here is that God values civilization and culture. Um, He he loves a well-ordered society. Uh, He loves good culture. And the best way way to counter bad culture is to create good culture. I have very little time for people who say that unless you're standing in a pulpit, unless you're a career Christian um, who's paid to do Christian things then you're a second-class citizen. That is balderdash. Fulfill your creatorial mandate to explore creation and steward the planet. Discipline your mind by studying quantum mechanics or the music of Bach or the plays of Aeschylus. Engage in the realm of ideas. Build great software algorithms or cure cancer or write balanced policy papers that bring about good governance. Above all, learn stuff. Be intellectually curious. I am astonished at the number of young Christians who display less curiosity about life than than a dog on a walk. And then ask yourself how the gospel illuminates and speaks into your academic studies. Never reduce the gospel to some infantile formula that has nothing serious to say about the world in which we live. So we are to love the Lord our God with our minds. And that, I think, is one of the lessons which comes out of the book of Daniel.
0: Jim, thank you so much for your time today and unpacking the book of Daniel for us.
1: And I'm no longer in, 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 in a depression. Leonard, oh, brilliant. Leonard Cohen has been forgotten.
0: <laughs> yes, we've been successful. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for tuning in to the CI podcast. Join us next time as Jim and I continue our conversation on characters in the Bible who have faced uncertainty. For now, stay safe and have a great rest of your day.